Our gospel reading this morning paints two vivid pictures of losing and finding. And I'm confident that many of you, even within recent memory, have experienced the urgency of finding something that was lost. About 20 years ago, my husband and I uh, were going to a, a party with our children. It was a summer party. It was in the early evening. And when we arrived at the house, there was a room with a babysitter in it and some other children. And so we dropped our children then probably about five and a half and a three and a half in that room and went out to enjoy the party. And then about half an hour later, as it was getting dark, we saw this beautiful sight of all these children running across the lawn. But there was one missing, and that was our son Henry, who was three and a half. Well, you can imagine, frantic. Uh, we raced inside the house, we searched in every room, we asked people, and we finally asked our daughter, five and a half, who could hardly have been expected to be responsible. Uh, but she said, you know, uh, we actually went out into the driveway and Henry was very interested in this antique car. So uh, Richard and I went out into the driveway and there in the dark, sitting all by himself in the driver's seat with his hands on the wheel, was Henry Kennelly, aged three and a half. Can I tell you the joy the joy that we felt when we had him in our arms. There had been nothing more important to us than finding our lost Henry. Well, before we look at the parables in detail, we need to pay attention to the context which gives rise to Jesus' telling of them. And it is succinctly summarized in the first two sentences. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What is happening is that the people who have made a mess of their lives, ignoring God and doing all sorts of irresponsible stuff, are apparently coming near to listening to Jesus in droves. They are identified as sinners and tax collectors. Luke especially calls out the tax collectors because they made their living by squeezing revenue from fellow Jews to hand it over to the Romans. Elsewhere in the gospel, we hear that they were notoriously greedy and often abused their position for personal gain. We aren't just talking about socially marginalized people those who through no fault of their own are treated like outcasts, the poor and the sick and the blind and the lame. Luke tells us they are listening too, but the ones identified in this story are the sinners. Using our imagination, we can see them. The thieves, the cheats for their college applications, the gossips, the embezzlers, the ruffians, the loose women, the philanderers, the goof-offs, the drunks, all the unlikely people who are crowding around Jesus to hear what he is saying. 
for those of you, myself included, who occasionally watch HBO. This is a good use of that vast inventory of unsavory characters. You can put them in this scene, straining to hear the strange message of Jesus. And not only are these disreputable people crowding around Jesus, he's actually accepting their invitations to dinner at their houses. Accepting an invitation to share a meal was a much more significant thing to do in the ancient Near East than it is here in Nashville today. It was a kind of declaration of spiritual unity to share table fellowship. But Jesus is apparently eating with all sorts of people. And in the midst of this seemingly undiscerning sharing of himself, it turns out that it is the unsavory characters who are the very ones who are drawing near, who are listening. In the Gospel of Luke, when someone is listening, it's a code word for responding to the gospel message. Hearing is a sign of conversion. Jesus says several times, let the one with ears to hear listen. So on the one hand, we have sinners drawing near, listening, responding to Jesus' message of repentance. They are sinners, after all, and conversion. The word used in the gospel is metanoia, and it means a fundamental reorienting, a change of heart and mind. And on the other hand, we have the Pharisees and the scribes who are grumbling. They're angry. They have, at least in their own minds, been dutifully doing the work of God. For years and years, they've been putting up with all the requirements and the ordinances. And now all their service seems to count for nothing. Jesus seems to be lowering the bar of admission to the kingdom of heaven to such a degree that, well, who would want to be admitted? Those Pharisees and scribes are doing a sort of calculus and deciding that Jesus brings nothing of use to them. They don't stand to benefit from his sort of talk. Years ago, when I was serving as a hospital chaplain, I had two conversations with two different women on the same day. The first woman uh, had been at the hospital the whole week before, taking care of her very difficult and emotionally challenging father. And in fact, she had gotten an ulcer from that and was now in the hospital herself. And we were talking, and she told me that though she had been raised Christian, she, she didn't really believe in Jesus as anything more than a wise teacher. And she said this, I never asked God to die for me. Suggesting, I think, that she sort of resented the fact that he had gone out of his way and engaged in such extravagant sacrifice on her behalf. You know, sort of like the aunt who just is always giving you presents that you don't really want, but you have to write a thank you note for. The other woman was in the emergency room. She had just attempted to take her life by swallowing a bottle of pills, followed by a bottle of vodka. 
She was lying on that cot in the middle of the hall, and I can remember the tears streaming down the side of her face onto the pillow. She said, Jesus, save me. I'm yours, over and over again. I was very struck by the situations of these two women, one who was responsible and tired and uninterested in the saving promises of Jesus, and one who was desperate and tired and who was utterly dependent on the saving promises of Jesus. Well, here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, at some point in our lives, we acknowledge the appropriateness of that second woman's cry for ourselves. Jesus, save me. I'm yours. Because as John says in one of his letters, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But until that time, the whole notion of Jesus being a savior, of Jesus personally extending complete forgiveness and a total fresh start, well, it seems a bit overdramatic and unnecessary, something that maybe other weaker people need. We might be happy for a Jesus with whom we can banter about philosophy or the finer points of theology, or maybe even use as an example for ways of living life well. But we don't really need a Jesus who saves us until we do. By the way, I am speaking from my own personal experience here. It took a long while before I realized I needed a Jesus who saves the lost. These scribes and Pharisees are in the situation of those who don't think that they need to be saved. They don't need conversion because they already consider themselves righteous. And so they're grumbling that Jesus is wasting all this time with the needy, complicated people. When faced with these murmurings, Jesus tells three parables all about losing and finding. We're focusing on two. The first is about a shepherd who loses a sheep and leaves 99 to go after the lost one until he finds it. And when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And then he has parties, or a party, with all his guy friends. I mentioned the detail of the guy friends because the next parable Jesus tells is about a woman who loses a coin for which she sweeps her house diligently. But when she finds it, she has a party with all her girlfriends. The feminine ending is specified in the Greek. The word is philos, not philos. I'm always surprised and refreshed by the way Luke's gospel characteristically provides examples of women right along examples of men. And this particular example is all the more startling because when we think about it, the woman, like the shepherd, is embodying the passionate persistence of God who searches diligently for us, who goes after us until he finds us. And when he finds us, he invites us back 
into loving relationship with him. God prioritizes seeking and saving the lost. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. But of course, searching for the lost is very costly. I think about the lives lost in marine rescue work. As a former resident of Cape Ann in Massachusetts, my husband and I were very familiar with the account of the fishing boat, the Andrea Gale, a sword fishing vessel that headed out beyond her normal course in uncertain weather in the 1990s. A terrible storm arose and the captain unwisely did not turn back. The Andrea Gale eventually lost radio contact and was in distress. A mayday call was placed by a sister ship and a search and rescue helicopter responded from the National Guard. But because of enormous difficulties and despite enormous bravery, that rescue mission lost all her crew but one. Searching and rescuing the lost is terribly costly, whether it be in natural disaster work or in the work of saving our eternal souls. Jesus says, I have come to seek and save the lost. This is his purpose and his promise to us. It is an effectual promise to us because it is a divine promise to us. My mentor, a Caribbean priest named Zanetta Armstrong, used to say, Marjorie, Jesus came out of his comfort zone in heaven to rescue you. It's true. I'm sure the beloved Son of God had things he could have been about other than coming into Roman-occupied Palestine as a poor Jewish man who would be nailed to a cross. But there was nothing more urgent to him than seeking out and restoring the lost. And this was the way. That aspect of costliness will, of course, be true for the church. For us personally, as we participate in this divinely initiated search and rescue, we too will be drawn out of our comfortable spheres, you know, into unknown territory where some people will be having years to listen and some won't. It'll look like a small group to us, you know, the ones who seem to respond to what we say. But we are called out of our familiar old doings so that we can share with those who do have ears to hear about the promise of complete forgiveness and restoration and new life promised to us in Jesus. Amen.